because I think there are a lot of myths and misperceptions around it. I think people think when we talk about equity and excellence that we're just gonna, um, uh, you know, stop all services um, or we're gonna open and um, some classrooms and some really high service items to any kid who, who wants it. It's not about that. What it is is about not sacrificing the needs of some students, but yet better meeting the needs each and every other students. It's about seeing students at potential versus at risk. It's about not putting up barriers and hurdles that sometimes we do. Instead, opening um, access and really ensuring we are having intentional program that removes those barriers and expands opportunities. Hello, and welcome to NCAGT's podcast, They'll Be Fine. I am one of your hosts, Catherine Caldwell, and today you are in for a treat because joining us today is Alexia Rose. Hello, I am also an educator looking to help support gifted learners in any way that I can because time and time again, we hear they'll be fine, they're smart, they're already ahead of the game when people refer to gifted learners. Because of this sad misconception, too many students fail to reach their potential because they do not receive appropriately challenging curriculum services. Our nation's education policies narrowly focus on the achievement gap for struggling learners, which is extremely problematic for the widening excellence gap faced by high ability students. Most regular classroom teachers do not receive adequate training to recognize and address the needs of high ability learners. This is even more pronounced for children of color, English language learners, and children from low-income backgrounds. In addition, these teachers are under a prohibitive amount of pressure to close the achievement gap of their struggling students. While this is an important measure, it shouldn't be at the expense of our gifted and talented students. Here at NCAGT, we believe that it's up to us as parents, educators, and stakeholders to provide the gifted community the support that they rightfully deserve. Listen to They'll Be Fine to learn more about what you can do to ensure that your gifted and talented scholars are provided the resources they need to thrive. We are here because the saying they'll be fine just isn't good enough. Sneha Shaw Coltrane is currently the Director of the Office of Advanced Learning and Gifted Education at the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction. She works with public school district and charter school leaders and teachers, policymakers, families, colleges, universities, and other advocates of advanced learning opportunities and gifted education to ensure that the advanced learning needs of students are effectively met in the state of North Carolina. Ms. Shaw Coltrane has served the public education community for over 27 years in various roles. Her path has included serving as a classroom teacher, AIG gifted education lead specialist, district leader, associate director of Project U-STARS Plus, a Javits grant with UNC Chapel Hill, and various positions in several professional organizations. Most recently, she has served as past president of the Council of State Directors of Programs for Gifted.
so just to get started, what Sneha brought you into the world of education? Sure. So there, you, you think back to the origin story, right? That so many people talk about. There's two main reasons why I've gone into education. I've always wanted to be a teacher. I think I wanted to be an astronaut for a couple of like in kindergarten, maybe or first. <laughs> Somebody told me I had glasses or something like that. But I uh, still have a fascination for space. But it really is about the value that my parents instilled in me about education. They were immigrants who came to this country for an education and for a better life. And that has always been a priority in my own family household. But I also saw the difference it made for my father growing up in a very small village and all of the community support he had through education, graduating early, et cetera, and the power of education. And from an early on, it's always fascinated me. Actually, I found something recently that actually from my junior or senior year in high school, it was a note from my vice principal, then they were called vice principals. And it was an invitation to come and speak at an AIG minority student panel in the library. And part of it was because they had automatically put me in AP literature. And I do not read well. If it, Early on, I, I have no doubt that I probably have some type of disability. And literally, I had to advocate to help them understand I really shouldn't have been in AP literature. And that, of course, was because of my background, right? We, we make a lot of assumptions about students and being Asian American, that was the assumption made. Now, I hope there, there are more at potential assumptions made about lots of children, right? We all work towards that. But I was on that panel, right? And so it's interesting to think back on that note, back in 11th grade and 12th grade that I was already sitting on helping AIG teachers think through how they're working with students. Lots of different reasons, but education's in my blood, I feel like. And it is what I believe to be the greatest gift our country, our state, our cities and communities can give our children, not only for their own fulfillment, but for the sake of, of our country as public education. And that's beautiful. Look at where you are today. Someone who struggled with reading as a child. Oh my gosh. I just feel like so many kids need to hear those yeah. stories, like hear Absolutely. that, that you can achieve anything you want. You yeah. just might have to work a little harder or in a different way. And I have no doubt that at the time there was no exact diagnosis, et cetera, but I was part of the AIG programming here in North Carolina and in other States before we moved here. But I do, in retrospect, recognize that I may not have understood why I couldn't handle AP Lit, <laughs> and I knew <laughs> I shouldn't be sitting in AP Literature. <laughs> and so it's something that really is part of, is just an interesting story. So what does a day in the life of Sneha, the Director of Advanced Learning and Gifted Education, look like? What does it not look like? <laughs> I'll tell you what it doesn't look like. I don't get to hug all my kids or give them high fives entering the classroom. That is something I still miss. Mm. But you know, being um, at the North Carolina Department of Public Instruction, it really um, varies day to day. Um, we work with so many different stakeholders, shareholders, community members, that it really just varies. But on a typical day, I will say, 
communicating via email, sometimes 100 a day, <laughs> of ensuring we are moving forward. I'm responding to teachers if they happen to have my email address, working with my team, working with other leadership at the department, responding to a legislative need, working on a state board of education item. So a lot of communication, a, a lot of reporting, right, of helping look at all of the hard work that's happening across our state, right? Murphy to Manio in classrooms, kindergarten to 12th grade, and really helping create summaries of that work to inform where we need to go. And yes, we communicate, we analyze and look at data. But another big thing we really do is think about programming and initiatives, right? What, where have we been? And what can we do? What else can we do to support those doing the hardest work of all, which are our teachers in our schools? And so what can we do at the department to model? What can we do to remove barriers? What can we do as a state to say, okay, we're seeing this really across the state. What resources can we provide? What policies can we help shape? What practices can we highlight? How do we change mindsets? And really, we spend a lot of time looking at projects and initiatives across our team and within the agency, right, to, to synergize efforts. So if something is happening with accountability, how do we work with them trying to think about some of our most of our children with some of our most advanced learning needs? How do we work with CTE, which is career and technical education? How do we partner there? So it's a lot of partnerships, a lot of analyzing data, reporting, a lot of communication, and then the great work of sitting back and thinking about how to support our districts, our schools to move forward and really think deeply about how we ensure we are not only meet, well, we are meeting the needs of our advanced learners that we can see easily. And also, how are we helping our districts really provide opportunities so we can see maybe the untapped potential in some of our children? in all of our programming areas. So it's a mix of a lot of different things for sure, but it really involves policies, practices, and mindsets at the state level. And that is how we also are working with our schools and districts on that same triangle. We have a little graphic we have, I call it the Harry Potter graphic. I'm not sure if I can officially call it that, but it's like a triangle in a circle. <laughs> but this idea Close. of mindsets, policies, and practices, right? And that's really how even you, what you have to do, right, in your classrooms, right? How do we work within the rules, but then push them forward and inform them? How do you um, improve and continue to develop your own trade as a professional and as a teacher? And how do you continue to work with your children, right? And their mindsets and their families. So I think educators all over, that is what we're doing. And that's what we focus on at the state level too. I'm sure it's so great to see and have this picture of all of the state and all the different counties. It makes me think of at the conference when you spoke about how mm -hmm. each county and got, gave those like call outs and shout outs to each yeah. county and how they were doing. I loved listening to that because I was like, 
This is so cool hearing. Cause yeah. I just feel like sometimes we get in our own little bubbles and our own little yes. where we're working. And it's just so nice to hear like this County is doing this great thing and they're doing blah, blah, blah. And I just think mm-hmm. that's, so I'm sure that's wonderful. Just getting to well, see like, one of my uh, mentors who, who many will say is the grandfather of gifted education, James Gallagher, that I was very blessed to be able to learn at his feet and Dr. Mary Ruth Coleman's feet. Is that something he taught me was that it is better not just to study wars, right? But how do we stay out of wars and this mm-hmm. idea of pockets of excellence? right? How do we study those? And not just the challenges. You have to be aware of what's happening in the challenges, no doubt. But really being able to to lift up these promising practices, uh, these pockets of excellence, in my opinion, is the way we can move forward as individuals in our classrooms for what Alexia does in her classroom, Catherine, what you're able to do at a different level, what, you know, and then as we each do those things, how it then impacts the next larger area, the whole ecosystem. So then we're moving forward together as a state. It is absolutely, you're absolutely right, Catherine. It is one of my joys and really incredible things I get to do. Then at the same time, you do also see some of the challenges of moving an entire state forward. Mm -hmm. So while Lexi is doing what she does in her classroom or Catherine in your classroom, it is incredibly challenging to get us all on that same page and to all move forward, right? And But that is what we're here for is to continue moving forward We just did a professional development day with all of our AIG coordinators in both LEA school districts and charter schools just on Wednesday, (laughs) two days ago. And the theme was elevating your program, elevating the state. And so Mm -hmm. that's what it's about. It's about doing that. And so we continue to strive. Definitely learning from one another. So when you attempt to explain your life's work to the average person, how do you help them understand what it means to identify or be labeled as gifted? I really try to stay away from when you're talking to somebody new, right? Stay away from the whole idea of labeling, right? Because in an ideal setting, we are able to meet all of our students' needs without giving them stickers right? Anytime, right? But the reason why we do this is because it's to help us all recognize that, hey, this student may need something different. And so starting with that conversation of in a classroom, we have students with varying needs. And what I work with are the programs that support the students who may be able to learn at a faster rate, who may be able to go a little deeper in the content and so on and so forth. And so this idea of helping them understand that there is this spectrum of children, just like on a sports team. So often the community understands sports teams, right? Mm-hmm. You have you have an entire, I'm so bad with sports analogies, <laughs> so just know I'm not going to give a good one. You have the LeBrons and the Jordans and the Marcus Page, because we just heard the Marcus Page is coming back. So we have those, right? these incredible players, but then most of everybody else (laughs) is more in the typical basketball circle. And so this idea of teachers are able, and we expect all students to have a certain level 
of understanding and standard basic sound, basic education. At the same time, there are other students who may need something different for their sound basic education. And so having that conversation and really bringing it down to individual, right? If they're wearing glasses like myself, you know, just like, mm -hmm. you know, glasses, like, you know, we're all, you know, so on and so forth and really trying to connect that. I feel like in the game of soccer, everyone needs to understand the game, but the goalie doesn't need the same practice a as a striker. That's exactly need different right. things. That's exactly right. That's a great way of explaining it. Very nicely done, Alexia. And so that that's super important and to help people understand that, and that's true for any child, mm -hmm. right? And, and so how do we personalize education? And I think that is so important for every child. And then in particular, where we focus on is our academic or intellectually gifted students, our students with advanced learning needs. Another thing Dr. Gallagher told me was, you know, Sneha, everybody has a gift. You're going to hear that a lot. And he was like, and we all believe that. And what you are focusing on are those children who have academic or intellectual giftedness or advanced learning needs, however you prefer to define that. But it is, it's really helping us think through responding to students. Mm -hmm. Would you explain for us the main purpose of DPI and specifically the advanced learning department? I feel like a lot of teachers like hear these words and we're all yeah. kind of like, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I'm happy to, because I'm not sure as a teacher, I understood. <laughs> so I'm happy to share that. So just like you have state level organizations for the health department, okay, we all lived through COVID, right? We had Mandy Cohen, we had the Department of Health and Human Services, who deals with health at the state level, and then we have local health departments, and then you have doctors and nurses, right? Similar to that, we have a state education agency. So our primary purpose is to support North Carolina's public schools. Okay. We administer the initiatives of the State Board of Education, just like there are local boards of education and charter school boards. We have a State Board of Education with members that represent across the state. Okay. So we are the administrative arm of the State Board of Education. We also have a state superintendent that's elected, and we're there to help the state superintendent move forward their mission and vision. And then we are here to, to help our public schools move forward day to day, okay? Whether it's the state education agency does payroll, like we're the ones who help locals get funds to pay teachers. <laughs> we're the ones who license teachers. The, de the department is the agency that looks over exceptional children's and implements federal laws and state laws. So in North Carolina, we have our state law for gifted education. We also have lots of other laws that, that work with advanced learning as well. So the State Education Agency, to summarize, works with lots of different partners to support North Carolina public schools, teachers, the schools, the students, the families um, in the state of North Carolina. Now, with the Department of Public Instruction, we also have lots of different areas, okay, ranging from transportation to child nutrition to technology 
to academic standards, accountability. And then we have the Office of Advanced Learning and Gifted Education. And that is where I am the director and we have a team of incredible educators that have come together. And then Catherine, I think you also asked me to talk about the Office of Advanced Learning and Gifted Education at our North County Department of Public Instruction. So that's the area that I actually oversee. And we are so fortunate to have an entire team um, that works together to ensure our state is synergizing efforts, is coming together to ensure we are moving in the same direction um, for all of the program areas that touch students that have advanced learning needs. We are so fortunate in my tenure here that we I've had support of senior leadership. At the beginning when I was hired, I was just one consultant focused on AIG. And then over time, I got all these other initiatives and there was just no way for me to do that. And senior leadership saw that. So over the course of the last 14 to 15 years, we've actually brought nine areas together under this umbrella of advanced learning and gifted education. So we have, yes, our programming for AIG, which is our largest, absolutely, that focuses on students K through 12, but we also have North Carolina Governor School, which I know we're gonna talk about a little bit later, but we're so excited to have them as part of our team. Just recently, we, re- we, we brought them into our fold. We have our dual enrollment program, which is called Career and College Promise, which also incorporates our early colleges, officially known as Cooperative Innovative High Schools, North Carolina has one of the most successful dual enrollment programs. Again, that meets the students to accelerate our students. We have um, all of the advanced coursework from middle and high school, whether they're honors courses um, or AP Cambridge or international baccalaureate courses. So all of that management and program development comes through our team. We also have other programs that have been initiatives that really responded to the need. We once had a student who really inspired credit by demonstrated mastery. I'm not sure if our listeners know about this, but we have a program where middle and high school students are able to get credit for courses without sitting through them. This came out of two students who inspired us, one who was Um, already writing symphonies, literally. And so how do we help this student show us their abilities and get them to the right placement and course to be able to grow? And another student, if I recall, in middle school had a perfect ACT score. And so how do we help them get through some of these courses um, by an assessment versus to have to sit through a course where they may already know so much of it? And so we also have the advanced math uh, legislation and early kindergarten and really talking about talent development lately. This whole idea of K-12, how are we really searching intentionally and creating opportunities to bring out the best in students who may not have had those opportunities? So all of these program areas, and I believe we may be the only state in the entire country that has this, are now under one roof. And we all work together and we do strategic initiatives together. And it's really to help synergize our efforts and ensure we're moving forward. So you mentioned governor's school. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that is? 
I sure can. So the North Carolina Governor's School is the oldest summer residential program for some of our most talented high school students in the country. There are many governor schools across the country, and we are the first and the oldest. Um, we've been around for 60 years, and we're super excited to have just selected um, this summer's uh, students who will be joining us. We select about 810 students who go on two campuses, um, on an east campus and a west campus. The east campus this year, as well as many, as well as many years prior, is at Meredith College. And our west campus is at one of our most esteemed HBCUs, Winston-Salem State University. And so what that program, the students across the state are nominated from their school districts or um, a charter school or a private school or a home school or a federal school um, or a UNC school, and they're nominated. And when they go through this huge process, so we have thousands of kids. I would probably venture to say over 10,000 children across the state who are nominated locally. And then they go through a local process to be chosen to then come to the state selection process. This year, we got approximately 1,800 students to the state level process. Again, many thousands more locally. And we're able to invite them and then they're selected. And then we invite them to come spend four weeks with us in a residential setting that really is about creating community and immersing into thinking and learning in a specific discipline, but also cross-disciplinary without the traditional structures of tests mm -hmm. or grades. And so it's a beautiful thing. Most people will say that it was life-changing and we are just super excited that we continue to have support from the General Assembly, the Governor's School Foundation, the State Board, and the department to continue this program. I can help but think how powerful it is for these kids to get to be surrounded by people that are just like them. Mm -hmm. Because I think sometimes with giftedness, it can be isolating knowing that Absolutely. you're different. And so having this opportunity, I just like, I would love to be a fly on the wall and see these little chickadees just flourish. They do. We actually had a parent write us last summer and say that um, their student lived in a rural area and was a gifted musician, just who had worked so hard and who just could play multiple different instruments, but really did not have a community in their small rural town. And so when I believe the student was a he, and he, she was telling us how he was writing back to her, texting her, calling her and saying, oh my gosh, we have jam sessions in the quad every day. And it was like, he was just flourishing. And that's what we hear, right? Some students, this is their first time that they may have gone outside of their county. Sometimes another student several years ago said to me when I was, I visited and sat with them at lunch, they said, really, I've never been around students with similar interests. Now in some of our larger districts, they may have that, however, being not like not at the scale, right? Mm -hmm. At the scale of being on a campus with four other hundred, four hundred other students who are not just incredibly advanced in their content area, 
but also are deep thinkers and incredibly motivated. And so it's just a beautiful thing that comes together. And I would say 99%, 99 point something percent of our students would recommend the experience again. And it's gone on for 60 years. So something that you mentioned about Governor's School it made me think about our, one of our la- previous episodes with Chris Rice. He's on NCHT's yeah. board. Yep. We, we were talking about how sometimes gifted kids will mask their giftedness mm-hmm. because yes. of peer relationships and just different things. And I just feel like governor's school probably gives them that opportunity to flourish and not feel like they have to hide anything just because they're so focused and interested in this topic. And maybe sometimes others don't receive that as well. I'm sure that governor school provides that safe place for them to go crazy on whatever they're passionate about. Absolutely. Catherine, that's exactly right. That's what we hear all of the time. The students feel safe. They feel cultivated. They feel seen at governor school in ways that may not happen in some traditional classrooms. Now we hope that will happen everywhere, right? However, it's rare. You get 400 students living mm-hmm. together. There is nothing like it, right? Until mm-hmm. maybe college, 400 students coming together with incredible teaching teachers and staff in just this beautiful environment where we really create a learning community, really for 24 hours a day, seven days a week for those four weeks. What we hope is that we can continue to grow this opportunity in different ways for for more students to experience something like this. (laughs) Somebody just the other day was talking about maybe locally I could do a a governor's school local one. I'm like, that'd be great. But it's all about a service, a, a range of services for students. And we know that some of our most highly gifted students need something incredibly unique. And we believe our North Carolina governor's school provides that. Definitely. So as I dig deeper into this world of gifted, I keep hearing people mention Article 9B and how it's unique and how our state is doing great things and get for gifted for gifted children and gifted ed. And so could you just explain what that is and what that Absolutely. means for education? That is such a great question because so many people talk about Article 9B. So Article 9B in its simplest form, two words, our state law. It really guides North Carolina and our academically or intellectually gifted programs. The reason why it's unique is that we have no federal law governing gifted education, which is why the state law has to be as strong as possible. Article 9B, our state law, it's in 115C, came about in 1996. It was actually informed by many experts from around the country. And it really, it's still forward thinking because it allows local communities to do what they need to do to meet the needs of their students locally. It is about, it defines gifted students, not by giving specific criteria. So the old gifted education in North Carolina was the old 98 points. I started teaching underneath that. And there was a form that was triplicate. Y'all may not even know those forms, but there was blue writing where you wrote on the top and it automatically copied it. Multiple, I'll get all of your hands. Y'all are way Mm -hmm. past those, but we had that. And it was about 98 points. 
And some of us may have fudged it sometimes, maybe, I don't know, but it was one criteria across the entire state. So you could have a child in one of the, who has the most opportunities and the most resource school with so many other resources having to qualify with the same criteria as somebody in another child with maybe one of the least resource schools and the least opportunities, for example, to make it more simple. What Article 9b really did was open that up and it said, you decide your criteria, but the definition really is about students who need something different than the ordinary classroom. Okay, the regular education setting, it's more formal than that, but it's different, right, as compared to their peers. And so what we are finding and what we've known for a long time, but what I think education in general is really accepting now is we really need to start thinking about local norming, right? If you're going to do local services, you need to think about local norming. Now, at governor's school, we're doing a state service, right? And so we may have some different, right, criteria or so on and so forth. But, but with Article 9B, it really allows our local school districts to develop their programs based on their own student population and their context. So a student who, for example, may be at a low-performing school, well, let's say the average there for lack of being all statistically accurate, 70%. Let's just say on average kids score 70%, okay? This student is performing at 80%, okay? That student needs something, or not say 90%, 90%, right? Oh my gosh, that student needs something absolutely different, right? In that class, in that setting, because the average is about 70, okay? Now, if that child moves and they go to another place, where the average may be closer to what that student is, that student may need something different. And so the beauty of Article 9b, um, I believe, is that it really um, gives us the strong foundation in North Carolina to do what we need to do to ensure individual student needs are met. And right now, it really provides us the foundation for our strategic initiative for equity and excellence, which I hope we get to talk about today. But it is really gives us, it's strong in that we also, it mandates identification and services. Okay, that's another piece of why Article 9b is so beautiful. There's some states that have legislation that, leg that says identify them, but you don't have to serve them. Some states says serve them, but you don't have to find them. So we do, so that's another aspect of Article 9b, um, and there's a specific number that follows that, our state law, where because it not only allows for local flexibility, right, it also allows for there for us to ensure that we are identifying and servicing students. That's very helpful. Thank you for explaining all of that. And I almost feel like it allows us to, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, allows us to be more flexible in how we serve these students because there's a strong foundation. So you Absolutely. don't need to just have a 98 to be served. We can identify Absolutely. you in different ways. That's exactly right. And so it allows us, it allows a local community, a local school district to determine their own criteria. Now you have to do that based on State Board of Education mm -hmm. 
standards and a framework, which we do have here in North Carolina. So based on that framework, they decide what they believe is really critical for their school district. Uh, and then they're able to serve based on that, based on their local context. And so Article 9B really helps us provide a statewide framework with local flexibility. And that helps us move our state forward. I think that's so beautiful. And it, it just makes me feel empowered because, oh, you trust us as educators to do what is best for our kids. That is just, that feels that's exactly good. right. And that's from 1996. It was very forward thinking then. And now as the field is catching up to that forward thinking and the community understands how important this is, we're really starting to see synergy around using that Article 9B to its fullest, which is just really exciting work. Do you have an academically talented child who's looking for a challenging and exciting summer program? Summer Institute for the Gifted provides innovative academic programs for exceptional students from all over the world. Enroll now at some of the top universities in the country, including UNC Chapel Hill, for courses like robotics, creative writing, and neuroscience. These courses are designed to engage and inspire your child, allowing them to grow into the next best version of themselves. To learn more and enroll, visit our website at giftedstudy.org. I want to talk a little bit about policies and educators. Why is it important for educators to stay well-informed about all of the education policy when some people may feel like they have little control over what's put in place? Yeah. So that is something I wish I could change. Until I got here, until I became this position, and I also oversee all of the academic policies for the department as well, what I have learned is that understanding policies is so important and that in fact, every educator does have a voice. The key is how you share that voice, right? So we always hear in the community, one call to your state legislator, they take one call to mean what? About a hundred other people. I don't know. That's what you hear, right? That's in the community, right? That one call represents so many more people thinking that way. And so um, I hope people listening will really take this seriously when I say we want to hear from you. We really do. And when your district asks you, hey, what do you think? Share what you think. If they don't ask you and you want to share, do it. Do it how you feel appropriate. You have State Board of Education members you can share your opinion with. You have me and my team who you can share your opinion with. You have the state superintendent. She even has a parent advisory group now and just started a parent newsletter. There are teacher newsletters. There are teacher representatives as well, the teachers of the year, et cetera. There's so many ways, and but it just, it takes initiative, right? And courage. But I really challenge teachers and everyone to voice their expertise. Because we do, when I take a policy forward to the state board, they ask, how did you get input? And we try to get input. And, but when a teacher reaches out and shares their input, that means a lot. And I take that very seriously. And so I urge teachers to really think about wherever the policy is coming from, whether it be locally, whether it be from the state, wherever it is, 
to please be courageous and please share. Uh, now, I understand sometimes we all just need to vent. Today, I was in a meeting with fellow directors and it was not my finest moment. And mm -hmm. I just said, I need my peers to hear me vent about something. I totally get that. And we're here for that as well. However, when you can be give pr productive and constructive ideas and the challenges, but also ideas for solutions, we love that. And we take mm -hmm. that very seriously. But let me go back to the first part of your question, why policies are important to really understand. So policies really guide our work, whether they're a board policy, whether it's legislation, whether it's a local board policy, whether it's a rule, right? It's like any rule or regulation out there. The reason why it's so important to understand those policies, not the incredible details, right? That's my job. <laughs> my job <laughs> is to, to understand every single detail and make sure you're informed about the big parts and to make sure when I see issues in policies that the department informs. Like right now, we have lots of legislators writing bills. They'll come to us. If they ask for our opinion, we'll say, hey, here are some pitfalls. Here are some pitfalls here. Here are some pitfalls there. But the reason why is because sometimes they're incredibly validating, just like Alexia, you just mentioned about Article 9B. When you actually read some legislation and policies, you may realize you have a lot more <laughs> room and movement that, than you realize. Sometimes things get lost by messengers, right? Sometimes things get misinterpreted. But the key is to on issues that you feel are really important to you personally is to take some time to learn, ask, always feel free to reach out to me or my team, but ask your chief academic policy, ask your principal, ask your grade level chair, hey, where'd this come from? Because sometimes you may be surprised. You also may be surprised because some legislation and policies may actually be very direct, okay? And so sometimes they say, I remember I was a teacher. Oh, my principal made me do it. Or no, and then the oh, the district made us do it. And then it comes to DPI. Well, DPI made us do this. More times than not, it may be an actual law. Okay. So sometimes we get people writing us, and I'll say, I am, you know, thank you for sharing. This is a law you may want to reach out to your local representative to be able to share your uh, experience as well. And so I think being informed is like you said, Alexia, if you don't mind me using your word, isn't empowering. It's empowering. It's empowering to either guide you to advocate one way or another. It's empowering for me to hear from you so I can be as informed as possible when I work with policymakers. I had a couple of thoughts while you were speaking. Yeah. One was about, I had this friend, she retired, but I remember she used to get here, gosh, at 6 a.m., like as soon as the building was open. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I was like a first year teacher. So I was there. But you were there. <laughs> I was there too. Of course. And we would pull in and I'd always see her on the phone every single morning. And I'd be like, what are you doing on the phone at 6 a.m.? She's like, I'm just calling my representative. 
every single morning she would call. And I know so many educators and I have so many friends that are educators in my life. And I don't know a single person that does that. And I honestly don't either. And I feel like we all have thoughts and opinions and ideas and things that we might wish were a different way. But I think that's so powerful and something that's forgotten is reaching out like that, like Mm -hmm. making a phone call and letting people know or sending an email or, and then I was sitting here, I'm like, why don't we? And then I had a thought too about how sometimes I think when I hear the word legislation, when I hear policy, that's a little intimidating, honestly, to me, just in my realm of where I work and where I live and the things that I do every day. I just want to hear that. I'm like, ooh, I don't understand. (laughs) And (laughs) I feel like it's stuff that we need to understand. And I, I think you just explained that beautifully, how you know, you might see this and not realize it's a law. It's not someone just decided that's how it was going to be. Like your state representatives, those people you need to to call. I don't know. I just think that's very helpful. And I feel like sometimes people, it made me wonder like, why why aren't we making these phone calls? Why aren't we emailing? It's so hard, right? It's so hard to be present in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. And we're always grateful if there is somebody who is able to add to their plate to share their thinking. And and it's also up to those people who are the ones proposing legislation to seek out input as well, right? There's some folks who get a lot of input, right? And there's some folks that don't. So it's a, it is a two-way street, but I really appreciate your message and I love that 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 teacher, that wise teacher was on, on the phone and kudos to her, right? And if you're out there listening and, and you do have some thoughts, we I'm always available to, to hear emails are always great to get. And, and I know everybody at the agency appreciates thoughts and we really strive at the agency. Any big initiatives that we do, we really reach out to chief academic officers. We really reach out to different groups of people. There's a teacher advisory group for the superintendent. There, there are lots of folks that we try that I hope in turn, so-and-so is getting what so-and-so who then is getting what so-and-so, right? And so it's a very large system at play. And I hope everybody really can find their way to advocate and share their thoughts in whatever ways they feel comfortable. And I think that goes back to just staying informed is so important. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I'm guilty of as well. But I, we see right here, I see right here in front of me. I do not see sometimes why that decision was made mm-hmm. or why those things are the way they are. It's because of this. And, and I just think that goes back to taking that time to, yeah. to research and, and find those answers so that you see that thinking and that the reasons why things are the decisions were made or whatever. Mm-hmm. For someone that may be feeling a little intimidated by it all, where would you suggest is a good thing to like maybe read or listen to that would be a good first step? Do you have any ideas? I think getting in touch with, if you're an AIG teacher out there, right? What I would recommend is getting in touch with your AIG coordinator. I think getting in touch with that coordinator, somebody at the district level who has that information. If you're a reading teacher, right? If, if you're an AP bio teacher, get with your AP coordinator. If you're whoever that next um, outer layer is, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a, a good first step. There, I think there are some other ways. We have some listservs on the DPI mainframe 
that actually communication sends out some updates. Our, our state board sends out a legislative update that you can just sign up for right there on the DPI main. You go all the way to the bottom and you sign up for different listservs. I think there are some really great ways that are not too, that, that are low hanging fruit. At NC, <laughs> they have a great listserv. Different groups like that. I'm not a digital native, but I'm sure Alexia and Catherine, you all could share with people. What are some great online tweeters or Instagram people or whatever to follow? <laughs> but I think there's a lot of information out there. So depending mm-hmm. on who you want, but when it comes to relationships, what, what, whatever your role is, go to the outer role, right? Well, if you're a teacher, go to a grade level chair. If you're order your principal or to a district level, get with your district on this. I know that's how I first started. The district asked me to start coming and do professional development my first year as a teacher. And like that opened up another whole world for me because I was like, oh, and then there I am doing, talking about my classroom and some of the unique things we had going on. And, and so when you start doing that kind of stuff, I think that makes a huge difference. This review comes from one of our listeners, Mike, and how he related what he heard in one of our episodes to his own childhood. I listened to the first episode of the podcast the other day. It's pretty good. The guest you had on said something about gifted kids when they hit the wall for the first time, like and how their parents handle it. I was a straight A student until eighth grade where I got put into AP classes. The first year of our AP classes in our district is basically the teachers teaching two years of curriculum in one year. I got a 57 on one of my tests early in the year and I remember my dad was fussing at me for being lazy. It was awful. But as soon as you all started talking about that, I was like, whoa, that's me. I've never been identified as gifted or anything, but what you were all talking about perfectly describes what happened in my life. Thank you, Mike, for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. If you're listening, please consider giving us a five-star review or leaving us a comment about what you think about the podcast. Each rating and review helps us to reach more listeners. So Sneha, can you tell us a little bit about equity and excellence in gifted education here in North Carolina? Oh, Alexia, I'm so glad you asked about that. That is one of my most favorite topics. And really what we as a state has been moving towards for the last several years. So in 2019, North Carolina actually um, started a a strategic initiative focused around equity and excellence. We actually call it a call to action. We really wanted to bring the experts together, both our practitioners and researchers and our families to really look deeply at issues surrounding equity and excellence, but also solutions. Because we know gifted education has added to some of those inequities. And what we wanna do is not add to it. In fact, we wanna become part of the solution. So we really have named our um, other states have named their initiatives. They may just be focusing on equity. And we really felt like equity and excellence both were absolutely critical to meeting the needs of North Carolina students. And it actually also um, uh, is, a, is an alignment with our State Board of Education's resolution for equity and excellence, because we can't do one without the other. We can't continue to, we, we must rather, continue to expand opportunities 
but also continue the work we're already doing and ensure that we continue to meet that the the levels of high need of high needs of our students. We really work a lot with our districts and other stakeholders which with ensuring that we discuss what it is and what it isn't. Because I think there are a lot of myths and misperceptions around it. I think people think when we talk about equity and excellence that we're just gonna, um, uh, you know, stop all services um, or we're gonna open and um, some classrooms and some really high service items to any kid who, who wants it. It's not about that. What it is is about not sacrificing the needs of some students, but yet better meeting the needs of each and every other students. It's about seeing students at potential versus at risk. It's about not putting up barriers and hurdles that sometimes we do. Instead, opening um, access and really ensuring we are having intentional program that removes those barriers and expands opportunities. And it's really important that we don't have a one program fits all. We must think about a range of services, reframe our lens, use more equitable identification practices, provide the range of services I discussed, foster talent development and front-loading for children who need that so we are able to see them being their best, collecting and using meaningful data, and then most importantly, providing critical professional learning experiences for our teachers. And all of this, we feel like, focuses on improving mindsets, policies, and practices together. And so it's about sharing promising practices. It's about um, improving our policies and really moving forward in that way. And also about changing mindsets. And by working together with all three of those, we can move forward as a state. We've actually been noted by several other national organizations, several other states have come to us to ask us what we're doing because we have really created this, this incredible framework that's accessible. We're sharing great um, pockets of excellence from across the state. Uh, we did so at the, at the state NCAGT conference because it's so important for us to um, learn from how thing, people do good work than always just talking about the problems. We must come together to realize equity and excellence in gifted education. Thanks so much for asking me that question, Alexia. I feel like I've heard this story of, or this like fable or whatever, of like a fish being asked to climb a tree and it can't, and it lives its whole life thinking that it can't do anything because it couldn't climb the tree. But yet there are things that that fish could do that other people could not. And, but it's not like anybody's like, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. That just kept coming to my head about like giving people what they need. Absolutely. Not necessarily. I don't know. Well, you know, um, there are students who walk in on day one of kindergarten who already can read Harry Potter. Clearly, we know they need something different. And clearly, that means they had access. Mm -hmm. We then yeah. have other students who may have been responsible for shopping or taking care of their younger siblings and didn't have necessarily that same 
experience. So how are we bringing out and really giving them um, learning environments to show us their potential? And then there's another type of child, they may not have had any of those types of experiences. And so how do we intentionally front load? How do we give them some of that, some of those skills and understanding so that way they're activated and we can move them forward. So it is so much like that. And so I really, I really appreciate that, that um, analogy, Catherine. How do you feel about the title of our podcast, They'll Be Fine? I love the title of your podcast. It, one of my biggest pet peeves, something that really gets me going, is when somebody says they'll be just fine. Our students who already are able to master the basic, the basics, um, people assume they're going to be just fine, and they're not. Those of us that have worked with this population of students um, know they're not going to be just fine. And most recently, actually, our department, the North Carolina Department of Public Construction, um, has done incredible research out of our Office of Learning Recovery and Acceleration around COVID. We actually have done the only national, the only study looking all the way down to individual student data across the country. And what we found validated what we were hearing through COVID. Okay, what we were hearing through COVID is I would get a call or some of our other team members would get calls and say, they've pulled our teachers. They've pulled our teachers. We need to do this and we need to do this. We were in panic mode. We all were, there's no other way to say it. And we really focused on students who we assumed needed support. And they did, no doubt about it. There was, a, we, there was no doubt a lot of focus was given on students with exceptional children needs or multilingual students, except students who definitely needed intentional support. And there was a group of students that people just assumed were fine, right? And we heard that throughout COVID and the data showed it. The data showed, our quantitative data showed very clearly that our identified AIG students actually were negatively impacted in ways that we've never seen before through COVID. And right there, it shows that no, they will not be fine without services. No, they will not be fine without appropriate levels of education. No, they will not be fine without differentiated curriculum and instruction. They won't be fine. And as hard as it was personally and for my team to look at that data, we also, one side we had tears, right? And then another side, we were grateful for it because it proved very clearly that in fact, they're not gonna be fine in ways that we have never really been able to show before. And so I just absolutely love that your podcast is titled that because it really helps us. The biggest myth out there is that students with advanced learning needs, gifted students, however you wanna categorize them and label them, are just gonna be fine. And what I'll say is, for example, 
you're your mom. If somebody didn't give that incredible cellist a cello, I wouldn't have been fine. We never would have known that. I just use that example because a lot of people know that person. But the key is how are we responding to talent already seen and how are we then cultivating it at the same time? I want to just reiterate is that these students are incredibly unique. So they range from a child who may come in, who can read Harry Potter, who knows how to sit on the floor, who knows that there's a cubby where my kids had a happy room that literally looked like a classroom with <laughs> my husband's a kindergarten teacher, was a kindergarten teacher, right? So we had cubbies, we had hooks, we had a dress-up center, right? So you have kids who are going to come into school that clearly need something different because they're reading Harry Potter, for example. We also are going to have kids who, Alexia, like you said, or Catherine, I can't remember, who their talent is still masked, is not untapped yet. Sometimes that shows in at-risk behaviors. Sometimes that shows, I had a student once in my third and fourth grade multi-age classroom that was out on the playground, and she told the most magnificent lies beautiful lies, creative, charismatic lies, flat out lies. Now, you can either see her as at potential or at risk. Okay. <laughs> then we have students who may be twice exceptional. A lot of people call them 2E. That's usually when a child is has both maybe a learning disability or another exceptional area, um, but also giftedness, okay? Where, oh my gosh, they can do all these things, but all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, their eyes may not be moving at the same rate as others. No wonder they're missing some details because they're not turning the page as fast as all of their peers, right? You may have a child who, um, we had a child in North Carolina, one of my first years at, as director, this person said, yeah, we had a kid who had been suspended over and over again. And I had no idea. This was the coordinator talking to me. She was from a, a district out West and said, you know, I had no idea because we had talked about dropouts. That was part of the data. Like I'm all about looking at data and thinking deeply. And she said, Sneha, one of our dropouts on the dropout risk list was an AIG kid. Oh my gosh, thank God you told me. I had never thought about looking at that list. It turned out that child had been suspended because they had hacked into the grading system or something like that. So anyway, needless to say, the child ended up, this coordinator went and worked with them, ended up helping them create a business and the child graduated. So we, children of all backgrounds, of all different areas, um, may need something different. And gifted children don't look just one way. And I think in the history of gifted education, we may have perpetuated that myth. But in North Carolina, we are devoted to helping us seeing students at potential versus at risk and ensuring that we are, yes, responding 
to students who walk in first grade or in kindergarten, who we clearly know are working above grade level. And we got to do something different than letter of the day. But then we also may have children who may have not had access or may have some other unique and com complex situations that we must together work to create environments where we can see them being their best in order to continue supporting them. And so that's just something I really wanna make sure our teachers heard that you have advocates for that. You continue to advocate, find those diamonds in the rough, find those students, give them experiences so they can show us their best, but also give them those opportunities so we are filling those opportunity gaps as well so we can really ensure we're doing right by each and every one of our gifted children out there. That's what I hope for every child. And that's why I just love that you you have that as your podcast name. That just gave me chills. That gave me chills. The fact that there's data now to prove that. I think that's so powerful that people need to hear that because Absolutely. I think I still like, we'll talk to people sometimes and they think that those kids can teach themselves they can just do it on their own. They don't need that. And it's, they might be okay in one sense, like on the surface, but think about like where they could go, like where could, they could actually go from there. Think of if, the potential. That's needed. exactly right. That's exactly right. Think about that potential, right? And how are we developing? Because it is incredibly important and it's vital that we ensure that our students full potential is being reached because not only for individual fulfillment, which is so important, right? Joy and fulfillment and mm -hmm. feelings, having the agency for our students to really thrive, right? But it's also important for the sake of our country and society. Dr. Gallagher has a phenomenal quote about the curative drug not discovered or the unwritten sonata. All of these things um, when we think of how do we keep peace in the world, we need some people who come together who can think deeply and critically. Um, Sneha, this has been such an important conversation and we're so thankful to have had you on here with us. What if our listeners have questions or thoughts or things they want to just ask you, what's the best way for them to get into contact with you? Absolutely. So I personally think email is absolutely the best way. Always welcome to call. But I'll be honest, some days I'm in meetings back to back, but I will get to your email. And if for some reason you don't hear from me in a couple of days, email me back. It's very rare if you don't hear from me. So my email is sneha, S-N-E-H-A dot Shah Coltrane, S-H-A-H Coltrane, C-O-L-T-R-A-N-E at dpi.nc.gov. Love for you to write me, love for you to ask me questions. I can get to, to one of our team members who probably knows better than I do on different specifics, but we'd be, we'd be happy to hear from you and just know that we're some of your biggest advocates. We have your back and, and we want to ensure that we are pushing us forward and removing barriers for you to be able to do the hardest work of all which is, and the most important work of all, which is serving our students. And Catherine, one other thing, and Alexia, we gotta remember, is that whether there's an AIG specialist or not available, we must meet our students' needs all day, every day. 
And that is about a partnership coming together with the regular classroom teacher, with the PE teacher, with the AIG specialist, everybody at the table, because our students really need support and they are AIG all day, every day. And there you have it. Thank you for listening. And we really hope you enjoyed this episode of They'll Be Fine. We would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. If you're a fan of our podcast, please take a moment to leave us a review. And if that feels like too much, we get it. Instead, just take a few seconds to give us a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media. Every like and share counts and helps us to reach families and educators who are trying to navigate and advocate for the gifted loved ones in their lives. We'll see you in two weeks when we interview another amazing stakeholder in the gifted community.